Hello, and thank you for joining the IPG Media Lab from each of our respective homes. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and this episode was recorded on Wednesday, July 8th, 2020. Adam, what's going on? How are you doing this week? Doing great. Back after a long weekend. Uh, seems like it should be a slow news week, but it's not a slow news week. It's not, it's not a slow news week at all. It's just people came out of the 4th of July weekend just firing, you know, acquisition here, you know, acquisition there, just new product announcements. It's been, it's been crazy. So we'll just jump into uh, the first of the acquisitions that we're going to talk about this week is Google buys the quote-unquote AR glasses company North coming off of what we saw Snapchat developing and building. And in our talk with Caroline, I just, to me, this just feels so far behind. It feels like off. Like it doesn't feel like it's really solving any big AR issues. And I don't feel like it was progressing the larger ecosystem of AR forward in any way, shape or form. And I don't feel like they had any breakout hardware announcements that were like, you know, game changing. No, I mean, I think the thing that everybody is getting wrong is that, North was not an AR company. Mm. They were putting a heads-up display inside of glasses, which is just the same thing that the original Google Glass and I guess the current Google Glass also does. Um, It's not what Snapchat is hoping to do in the future. Um, It is basically like an Apple Watch in your peripheral vision. Um, There have been rumors that Apple is looking to launch uh, a similar product. I'm sure they have worked on it, Mm -hmm. but I think those rumors are wrong because I think Apple's solution to that is the watch, which people are already comfortable using. They don't necessarily need that in your peripheral vision all the time. I think that when we do see Apple glasses, they will have uh, contextual interactions with your Mm -hmm. surrounding environment, whether that is actually AR or just understanding what you're looking at. Maybe maybe it's visual search in the first version and not AR. But I I think that that that's the direction Apple's heading in, the direction Snapchat's heading in. So yeah, I don't see... Again, it's it is a. I'm literally just scratched my head because it's a head scratch. Yeah. Like why does why, why does Google what does Google get out of this? I don't think a whole lot. Yeah, I agree. But Adam, let's move on to an acquisition that I think makes a lot more sense. So Uber has acquired Postmates for two point six five billion dollars. Um, it's a great second place, knowing that Uber did not get uh, Grubhub and Seamless. Um, but I think it's still a fantastic acquisition for their business, knowing that delivery is becoming more and more of a revenue driver for the Uber business, given the fact that people still aren't really going outside. Um, so it makes sense. <laughs> I like it a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, it makes a lot of sense in terms of food delivery and that there's not a lot of overlap in the major cities uh, that, that Uber and Postmates both serve. So they're they're sort of consolidating some of their the cities that, that they have a, a, a strong position in. And then also Postmates has since their since the beginning, they've always also offered the ability for other retailers to come onto their mm-hmm. platform and use Postmates as fulfillment for same day delivery. Uh, little known fact, but Apple Apple actually uses Postmates to deliver uh, courier deliveries from the Apple Store. Cool. I've used it before. It's awesome. So I think that that might actually be you know part of the long term benefit for Uber. They they've tried to do stuff like that themselves before, um, but maybe having a team from the Postmates team dedicated to bringing retailers on board might sort of reignite that that part of the business for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And that's I think we talked about this a few times now, but for all of our brands, like it's an easy way to do e-commerce light. Like you can you can set up a Postmates store and have it featured in an environment where people are already shopping and looking for delivery. Uh, we've seen that with Walgreens. 
Um, what I think about this is just how much of Uber's business is like logistics. Like I could see them pivoting even towards the future where it's like they, they become more of a, a competitor, like a flex port where their core line of business is shipping and logistics, air freight, you know, train transit, whatever it might be. And like that becomes like their business versus like, oh, we're a, you know, like, like, a, like, a, like a ride sharing company or something like that. Yeah. I mean. Uh, it's important to remember that that food delivery, Uber Eats, is actually a huge part of their business already. Um, Everybody still thinks about Uber as ride-sharing first, Mm -hmm. uh, but actually in terms of profit, uh, Uber Eats is really driving their profit right now. Um, And so they are looking to to diversify. They also have Uber Freight uh, for long-haul trucking. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so they already are making sort of movements in in, uh, logistics. And I I do think that, you know... uh, TBD, how strong they are um, at some of those logistics. I, I honestly don't know how Uber Freight compares to other offerings. Um, but uh, that this last mile delivery and the long haul delivery, the fact that they have something in market for both of those things, you know, eventually you can see how they start to connect the entire uh, logistics tool chain into mm-hmm. one platform, um, which could be super interesting. In, in the future, in order to avoid some of the... Um, regulation we're seeing around gig workers and and the gig economy, if Uber did become and could convince regulators that they were um, a 100% pure platform um, that is agnostic of how you're using it, um, that would go a long way to solving some of their Mm -hmm. their labor disputes and and regulation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just, I I look at this and you know, as we start to see more people shop online and e-commerce becomes more of a thing, um, and we start to see, for example, in our next bit of news, like Walmart rolling out Walmart Plus, which is their competitor to Amazon Prime, uh, there is just a need for more shipping capabilities at different levels, long haul, short haul, scooter haul, bike haul, and Uber has the infrastructure for all of that. So I can just see this becoming a bigger portion of, of their business down the road. Um, but like, let's move into our our, our last bit of news here. And uh, as I mentioned previously, so Walmart uh, has announced their Amazon Prime competitor that will be launching in July. It's called Walmart Plus. Uh, so it'll be a subscription service that's going to launch, uh, like I said, in July, and it'll cost about $98 a year. Uh, and some of the perks that'll include are same-day delivery of groceries, general merchandise, discounts on fuel at Walmart gas stations, which was the most surprising thing I thought about this announcement. Did not know Walmart had gas stations. Uh, and of course, some early access to product deals. Long time coming. They're about 15 years behind Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the most interesting thing about this is that after after so many years of speculation that they would do something like this, um, it, it, it doesn't look like Prime really at all. Um, it is 100%. It looks to me, it is more equivalent to like a Costco membership because the benefits are 100% focused on shopping. Um, unlike prime, which obviously encompasses, uh, television, music, Alexa, like lots of other things into, into the prime offering. Um, Walmart, you know, we, we thought that they might be looking to do that as they, um, at some point dabbled with, uh, expanding their voodoo video service before eventually giving up on it and spinning it out. Um, I mm-hmm. guess when that happened, we should have known, uh, Walmart's subscription services only, only about shopping, not about anything right. else. Right. Well, I mean, you gotta play to your strengths. I think Walmart can really play to the strength of of shopping. Um, and it seems like the voodoo portion of it never really fit with what they were, um, I guess, interested in or had the expertise to really execute on. 
Yeah, the other thing that uh, Walmart sort of dabbled with, um, but ultimately sh shut down was Jet Black, which was um, a different kind of subscription service that was focused on the high end mm -hmm. and specifically high end um, targeting moms in Manhattan um, with like a concierge style shopping service where you could just te text them what you were looking for um, and they would they would help out with your shopping and, and deliver things uh, same day. Um, but uh, look, that never really came out of a closed beta, but it looks like they it maybe was too labor intensive to really scale mm -hmm. uh, to to be sort of a large scale um, endeavor. That I mean, I feel like there's this brand misalignment. To be totally honest, I think that's that's yep. like I, I don't think if you're a mom in Manhattan that's looking for a personal shopper, you're you're going to Walmart for that. Uh, that just seems like a a brand misalignment. I could be totally wrong, but I think that does open up the question of how many uh, Walmart shoppers are open to spending a hundred dollars a year mm -hmm. um, on a membership program. Um, I think it's it is. It's easy to say that this aligns with with uh, what Walmart's core strengths are, mm -hmm. uh, but does it align with their brand value proposition and their audience? Um, I think that mm -hmm. is still a little TBD. Yep, yep, totally. I think we'll definitely have to wait and see uh, on that one on how that kind of comes out. But on that note, Adam, shall we uh, go join Christina as we talk about our mid year check in on our Outlook 2020 trends, how they've uh, progressed. Uh, how we see them changing over the next six months and uh, just kind of chat about any other updates on what we predicted. Yeah. I think we need some traveling music to uh, go yeah, over shall to we? a different uh, <laughs> breakout room. <laughs> I'll, I'll add in a little Zoom chime. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. So Christina, how have you been? I've been so good. Um, it's so good to be back here. I feel like I'm home again. Great feeling. <laughs> yeah. We're always happy to have you back on the pod. So for those that don't remember, we had four Outlook trends. The first one was titled Democratize Creativity. Uh, the second one, Ambient Computing. The fourth one, Algorithmic Culture. And our, and our last one, The Age of Anxiety. Uh, and we're just going to go through each of these uh, and get a quick update on how each have progressed uh, and really how we see them playing out the rest of the year. So we're just going to go in chronological order here. Start with the very first one of Democratize Creativity. Um, so Adam, how do you want to approach this one? Do you want to give our listeners a, a little bit of a background or a, a refresher on democratized creativity first? Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll just back up for a second and just say that you know, as as with as as normally, um, our our outlook usually looks you know three to five years out, and the things that we can see consumers starting to do today, um, but that we think are going to be mainstream trends uh, in the next few years, mm -hmm. three to five years out. Um, and as with everything else that has happened uh, in uh, in twenty twenty. Uh, with with the pandemic uh, and with uh, with everything else that's going on, um, it, a lot of these trends have been accelerated. So these behaviors are starting to become mainstream a lot faster uh, than we otherwise would have expected. Which um, you know I think they all still hold. All of these trends still hold, but they are becoming mm -hmm. more important uh, even faster. So um, <clears throat> I think it's good to sort of jump through sort of trend by trend and, and talk about what's happening. Um, in terms of democratized creativity, uh, you know, the, the trend here was really focused on how um, digital tools are enabling people to be uh, more creative uh, in, in mm -hmm. more ways uh, in, uh, and lowering that bar to entry so that more people can be creative uh, using digital tools than would otherwise have been possible. Um, and I think the acceleration that we're seeing here is really that we're spending so much more time online um, because we have been in quarantine for so long um, that we're mm -hmm. spending a lot of time not only 
working, working online, uh, socializing online, but we also have these digital third places where uh, we are spending time places that are not, you know, at home with our families or at work with our coworkers, but sort of hanging out with, uh, with some, some mix of uh, friends, family, and colleagues in these more social spaces online. And that's really, right. I think, quickly underlines the need for these creative tools and, and the need for them to be more accessible. Um, and we've seen this across, I think, a variety of, of different um, of different places, everything from tools to make your uh, your video conferences that we are now on all the time at work, make those, <laughs> liven those up and make those more interesting, to what's happening in sort of social spaces in gaming where you see uh, Fortnite and Animal Crossing and Roblox and just all of the creativity that's pouring out both from individuals and from brands into those platforms. When you talk about like Animal Crossing, they have the like an actual game show or excuse me, not a game show, but like a, a late night talk show uh, that is live streamed on Twitch. Um, that is completely outside of what the game is about, but somebody has built uh, a complete universe in a sense within that game that is kind of taking advantage of everybody being at home and having like a late night talk show. Yeah. Animal Crossing, I think was one of the sort of surprise breakouts. Everybody, I think, you know, it became very popular very quickly um, with players uh, in terms of uh, mm -hmm. a, it's it's designed from the ground up to give you sort of a relaxing daily routine and you do sort of have to play daily if you really want to want to achieve things in the game but i think right. it was sort of a surprise breakout because it's being in a game from nintendo the social features are really kind of terrible and it's really difficult to sort of <laughs> do collaborative creation in the game and yet despite that fact despite all those barriers we saw a huge outpouring of uh of mm -hmm. individuals and brands creating stuff in the game um you know early on there were lots of museums that were recreating artwork in the game there was uh the uh, esports team and uh lifestyle brand 100 thieves that recreated their fashion line inside of the game mm -hmm. um, there's the talk shows there's lots of live events that are happening there's fashion runways that are happening it's just it's kind of amazing uh how um bootstrapped into something that was not at all really designed for this level of attention <laughs> um but, you know, it, it, so, so that I think was sort of a breakout surprise. Um, but also, you know, we have, you know, we see Fortnite and Roblox and Minecraft, which are the sort of games that we normally associate with uh, this kind of creativity. Mm -hmm. um, also just, you know, doubling down in sort of the, the number of people using them, the attention paid to them, um, and, uh, and the, new, the new features that have been rolling out to sort of support that. Yeah, definitely. Gaming saw, I think, a lot of a lot of the focus. When we think about like democratizing like creativity, are there any other parts of the trend uh, or things that you guys have been seeing um, that has really like developed, or what do you see happening in, in the second half of the year? I think what we've seen also is a new. I wouldn't call it a new class of creators, but people who didn't think they were creators have to become creators um, when their business models have been cut off otherwise. So, I mean, mm -hmm. everyone's seen, there are a ton of restaurants whose executive chefs are hosting cooking classes together, recreating famous dishes from the, the restaurant or Michelob Ultra did a really cool execution with fitness trainers and the fitness trainers who weren't previously content creators became content creators. And I think, um, there's almost this like long tail of people where if you have a business, it's almost like you have to create content in order to be legitimate during this time. And we'll see if that translates beyond. Um, but I think consumers 
even though there's, you know, pretty ubiquitous access to creators tools who may not have thought of themselves as creators are having to do so now. Um, and we could see that develop going forward. Yeah. It's a way to get like, like that, like diversify your revenue streams. Um, especially, especially if you're a restaurant, right? Like having like a YouTube channel where you can make ad revenue off of what you're already doing day to day. That's just, you know, gravy, uh, on top of, uh, your, you know, skill set. Yeah. There's the doing the thing that you do and then actually teaching other people how to do the thing that you do. And for some people, the, the, the second part of that is going to be a lot uh, of a bigger business for them. And I think that, you know, mm -hmm. I think what, what might come in the next six months is I think improvements to all of the tools, um, in that, you know, no one was ready for this moment, but, uh, the ability to be able to put a paywall in front of a zoom call or a paywall in front of an Instagram story and to charge people, you know, a dollar to watch your, your, uh, Instagram, um, is the kind of, those are the kinds of tools that I think we need to start, you know, there's, there is Patreon and we've seen people use uh, surprising platforms like OnlyFans to accomplish similar, similar things. But I think it needs to, eventually it will be baked into every tool, the ability to monetize directly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that when that happens, you're going to see a, a, t a tidal wave of people who are like, oh yeah, I, you know, I have this restaurant, but the restaurant's really my side gig. My primary gig is teaching cooking classes on Instagram. Um, and, and that that equation starts to flip for some people. And I think, Adam, the other effect that that could have on the influencer market more broadly is if you have actual chefs with actual restaurants coming on Instagram leading cooking classes, what happens to like Susie in Kentucky that like puts two tomatoes on a plate and calls herself a foodie, right? It could bring a right. bit more legitimacy <laughs> to what influence means and who is an influencer. There might be, you know, we might be moving towards that necessary context that weeds out and allows people to monetize different feeds versus being comped through other means. Yeah, I think that's a great a great point. Do do the do we lose the previous generation of influencers who were really riding on top of somebody else's uh, sort of platforms when the people who were who are creating that content originally move up to become their own influencers? But with that, I want to transition the conversation into our second outlook trend here, ambient computing. Um, so this one is kind of in an interesting space. A lot of it is, I would say, meant to be the interaction of the physical and digital, especially in the outside world. Uh, but as we know, for the past four months, nobody's been going outside, at least not to the levels that we were used to in the past. Um, and I know we know, for example, that Google has... Uh, canceled their project in Toronto with Sidewalk Labs, which was developing their test of what they believe the future of ambient computing will be and kind of like that connected smart city project. Um, so Adam, I'll direct this question to you. Where, do, where does this trend stand right now uh, with all the recent developments? Are, is this going to be paused? Is it going to be maybe you know a five-year trend out there? How do we see this developing, uh, just given the current state of the world? I actually think that this is going to be one of the things that is accelerated, just like everything else. I think that um, we, right now, obviously, fewer people are going out um, uh, or have been going out. But as things start to open up, I think we're actually seeing a huge demand for, um, for technology to come in and help make our public spaces uh, more accessible and safer and 
and all those good things. I think on a very base level, as well as I should say, not just a desire for those things, but an acceptance from consumers um, and from the public uh, to use technology to to sort of facilitate uh, use of public space. I think at the most basic level is the the contact tracing applications that are, are are present in some countries. This has been a real cultural thing. It's really hit hit or miss depending on which country you look at. But uh, Ireland just launched uh, their contact tracing app uh, earlier on Monday of this week. Um, and they on the first day 10% of the country had already adopted it and signed up. So um, there are some smart things they were doing with that rollout, but I also think it's a cultural thing um, around adopting that kind of technology. I think in the U.S. it would be a lot harder. Obviously, we're also a much bigger country, um, but um, I think the ability using technology to sort of you know trace uh, spread of, of of the virus is is one thing. But also, I think when you look at things like um, Amazon Go technology, I think that this is something we've been saying forever is going to be eventually a lot, most most stores will will work that way. Most store, you know, grocery stores, drug stores, things like that will, will work that way. But I think the need to remain as touchless as possible um, is going and and as distant, socially distant as possible is going to increase the adoption of technologies like that. Um, because Amazon Go could entirely regulate the number of people in the store um, at any given moment. They could gate it to specific populations so that you can sort of computationally enforce the fact that only seniors can shop between, let's say, 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. Um, and, and limit the number of people in the stores. And then obviously you don't have to interact with a cashier at checkout. Um, so it's it's increasing your your uh, your options for social distancing. I think that this that technology is going to roll out even faster than it would have otherwise. Um, because even as we come out of the pandemic and we have a vaccine and things start to go back to normal, I think we know based on how things have happened before in, in other parts of the world that we're going, the public is going to maintain some, uh, some wariness around uh, around certain kinds of social behaviors that used to be normal, and that there is going to be some some lingering, uh, not not fear necessarily, but more cognizant uh, behavior, uh, hesitance, yeah, hesitance around just public health in general, um, and and you know being as conscious of that in public as possible. So I do think, and I do think that technology can help um, in a lot of ways. Christina, how, how about yourself? Any any thoughts? Yeah, I, hot takes. I agree with everything that Adam said on the macro level. I also think on like the micro level of the individual. Um, this is anecdotal, but I think I'm seeing a trend just based on what I'm seeing in market and observing that people are becoming more health conscious, becoming more conscious of what they're putting in their body, at home fitness especially, and I've seen a ton of people getting more and more used to, and I would consider people late adopters, getting more and more used to wearing a wearable device to track and measure their health, um, partly to make sure that, you know, they're avoiding symptoms. And I think for a lot of the contact tracing benefits that Adam mentioned, but also I think we're seeing a renewed, renewed interest in taking care of yourself and personal health that I expect to continue after, especially with the threat of re-quarantining ourselves, which is just depressing to even think about. But uh, we're also seeing, I've also seen studies where from UCSF where um, they're using the Apple Watch to track heart rates related to COVID-19 and as a preventative measure. Oh, wow. So 
um, I think we're, we're easing into more and more people wearing smartwatches, wearing fitness trackers for a number of different reasons that especially multifunctionally, I think I, we would expect to continue for all the reasons Adam mentioned, but also for those added kind of individual personal benefits. One thing I just wanted to throw in here, I, I guess in, in a way that this, this ambient computing might be retreating a little bit. One thing we did see is um, a sort of retreat on companies uh, providing facial recognition technologies. So IBM has gotten completely out of the mm -hmm. market. Amazon and Microsoft are pausing their sales of facial recognition to uh, law enforcement agencies um, in response to Black Lives Matter protests and, and everything that had been happening with uh, around that. Um, and I think that this is, it seems like a little bit of a retreat, but I think it's actually good because I think what it shows is that there is widespread consumer awareness of how these technologies could be used invasively and um, companies responding to that concern at a consumer level. Um, and I think that that's good because it's happening with technologies like facial recognition, which had not yet been widely deployed in public places. And it's good that that's happening now. And I, I just hope that that level of scrutiny on, 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 uh, sort of, uh, on ambient computing technologies continues and that, you know, when, um, when, protests start to die down when we're not in a pandemic, that people are still paying attention to, um, you know, what, pri how private companies and, and, and government agencies are working together. Because uh, as we've talked about, there, there is a potential for um, negative consequences here. So I think that this is, is a good thing that that's being slowed down a little bit. Right. Or even one might say unintended consequences the theme of 2019 uh, here here at the lab. One of the areas that we talked about in this trend, though, was was AR. And I feel like that is a place that was kind of lacking um, when it comes to new tool like development. Christina, Adam, what about you guys? See anything really kind of coming to life? I think what we've seen in the fashion, beauty, and retail space, especially during coronavirus, is that when physical stores get shut down, um, many brands and retailers have been turning to AR and 3D assets to recreate that experience. I think when you look at something like what Dior did with their beauty store on Champs-Élysées, um, essentially recreating that in 3D and having AR functionality to bring the physical store experience to um, a digital channel, I think mm -hmm. has advanced very quickly in those highly visually driven industries. Um that said, I think what we've seen so far and what's been spun up so far, I wouldn't call AR in the traditional sense or even the end point of AR, even the perfect solution. I see them as stepping stones, but what it underscores is a need. What AR can do is bridge physical and digital channels. And I think as more brands and retailers step into needing to move flexibly between digital and physical, AR is that connecting point in a lot of ways. I think we've seen um, the announcement of several things um, that are still in the process of rolling out. Look, the fact of the matter is that it feels like we were in quarantine and have been in quarantine forever, but it's only been, uh, you know, let's four months uh, at this point. Um, and that's, 
you know, nothing in the terms of developing sort of cutting edge software uh, tools. So we can accelerate mm -hmm. cultural trends and social trends. It's hard to accelerate software development uh, faster than it's already been in progress for. So, um, you know, I think we've saw some some awesome announcements from from Snapchat around AR features that are going to be coming to uh, to Snapchat over the next mm -hmm. few months. I think those will all be out before the end of the year. Um, Apple has announced uh, a bunch of stuff at their developers conference in terms of developer tools. I'm expecting a big um, and Apple didn't on stage actually talk that much talk at all about AR at their developer conference, but we know the new iPhones are going to have the LiDAR sensor that was shipping um, on the uh, new iPad Pros. Um, and so I think that we're going to see Apple talk about um, AR more in uh, in in the fall, and I expect some consumer-facing products, uh, you know, shipping from them. Um, I think we're getting there. It's just it's hard to speed up that software development at this point. Right. Yeah. Well, with that, let's just dive into to trend number three, algorithmic culture. Um, so this one has definitely uh, had a lot to a lot to say, especially <laughs> on uh, when <laughs> I mean, especially when it comes to everything like that that is going on with with Black Lives Matters, um, with the pandemic, uh, how information is being surfaced, uh, what information is considered to be you know true or not true. But maybe maybe we just start with a review of what this actually is. Um, Christina, do you want to take 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 the overview this time? Yeah. So when we talk about algorithmic culture, we talk about with especially the rise of democratized creativity and more and more content being produced. There needs to be some way for us to figure out what to watch or what product to buy or what to consume. Um, and algorithms are for the most part, seeping into essentially every interaction that we have um, or every industry that we interact with. And I think the consequence of that is that we there's growing mistrust around what is going into the algorithm. When you think about things like a human in Silicon Valley creating an algorithm, it's, it's less clear about, um, it's less clear as to whether or not we should trust what, um, that algorithm is telling us to do based on the bias that goes into that bias that could or could not go into that. I should say, um, we've seen a number of ways to that we've, that this has been combated everything from a return to human curation, like Gwyneth Paltrow does with goop or Courtney Kardashian does with Poosh, or we we're starting to see things like self healing code or even human involved algorithms where, um, you can constantly update the algorithm. And I think this has been a growing concern that I think has come into the spotlight, um, especially within the last six months. Mm -hmm. And so, so Adam, do you want to grace us with your hot take uh, of what's going on? <laughs> When we initially developed the outlook for this year and we got to algorithmic culture, there was a little bit of, especially coming out of ambient computing, there was a little bit of like, okay, ambient computing is about like literally safety and uh, connectedness in the streets. And then you go to algorithmic culture and it seems like it's about what am I going to watch on TV tonight? Or like, hey, did you see this new artist on Spotify? Um, and that seems kind of trite maybe in comparison but i think if anything what one thing 2020 has taught us is how uh how important the 
algorithmic culture is to the news and to what's happening, uh, what's surfacing things in the world. So uh, everything from the murder of George Floyd, which um, in a pre-algorithm world never would have uh, been seen by as many people, uh, to the fact that we're still, you know, posting, we're still seeing Black Lives Matter protests um, in the streets, even though mainstream media has basically stopped reporting on it. But if you look at the right places on Twitter and Instagram, you still see protests every day Um, to the fact that it allowed scientists and doctors um, independently to connect directly with the public and issue statements about the way that uh, COVID-19 was spreading and things like the fact that actually we should be wearing masks, even when the CDC was saying something different and the government was sort of hemming and hawing about uh, issuing official statements that we were getting information directly from doctors and scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, there's you know misinformation sewn through a lot of that. But I think we saw in the first half of 2020, some of the benefits of that, that those algorithms can provide to us in terms of visibility of, of, of bad actors, um, as well as again, that ability for, uh, it, you know, people, people who know more about the uh, situation that's developing like a pandemic to connect directly with, uh, with audiences. Um, and I think that that is, you know, obviously, again, there's a, there's always a negative side, but I think we've seen that the positive uh, can outweigh the negative, uh, you know, coming years after years and years of things like Cambridge Analytica that sort of, I think, was creating a negative sentiment. We, we can see the positive benefits uh, pretty tangibly this year. Yeah. And I think I think to that point, too, it's understanding to the best of our ability how these algorithms work uh, is a very valuable tool for organizations, for companies, for influencers, because um, if you're able to understand how these work or don't work, it allows you to amplify your message even even more. I think the best example that we've seen is what happened on TikTok with the K-pop stands uh, as they were able to um, suppress uh, some of these hashtags that were being surfaced is that were maybe against the Black Lives Matter movement and override them and make sure all the content that um, was very against the Black Lives Matter movement wasn't surfaced. Um, so we're kind of we have a generation now that really knows how to play into these uh, environments. Even to a point where if we look outside of just social media, you know, how things work on like a, a, a commerce website, uh, you know, for example, there was, there was a thread going around about how you can uh, impact uh, the, the Trump merchandise sale website by doing cart abandonment. And that like, like that impact on like their bidding strategy for SEO when they have all these, um, you know, carts that are full but not checked out, they're starting to spend media dollars against people that are never going to check out anyways. Uh, and so people are getting very crafty because they understand how these things work uh, as a way of not only activism, uh, but as a way to use tools to broadcast their messages, which I thought was very interesting. And really like the first time I think I've seen this um, out in the public, out in the mainstream, um, when people are kind of about... Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, We talk about and have for years talked about that there is no online versus offline, like everything is all of the lines of blurred, but you are seeing that sort of digital activism that isn't just about talking. It isn't just about raising money. It's about actually doing something that it has a tangible impact um, outside of, uh, of things like raising money um, on the real world. With that, I would like to move into our last trend here, which definitely plays into uh, algorithmic culture, which is the age of anxiety. 
Uh, I think if there has been one trend that we have written about uh, in our 2020 outlook that has absolutely uh, just... I don't know, 20 X in magnitude, it would be this one. Uh, the, the, the age of anxiety. Yeah. The age of anxiety is sort of a, a macro trend that encompasses the other three and is focused on how, um, the increased out- output of content by uh, democratizing creativity creates sort of a tidal wave of content that is difficult to sort through. Um, the, uh, you know, Doubts around uh, ambient computing and and potential bad actors in terms of uh, of governments or law enforcement agencies using ambient computing in in ways that are not uh, to as they are intended um, by by consumers or as consumers would like them to, and then algorithmic culture and looking at how um, that the lack of trust in those algorithms and are those algorithms surfacing. Uh, the most important information and 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 accurate information as opposed to misinformation, um, and I think on top of that, obviously we have uh, a pandemic. We have a lot of people out of work. Um, we've got protests in the streets. Um, anxiety has been elevated, sort of across the board, um, and I think that that is uh, the the thing that has changed is that everybody I think is now much more aware of of the anxiety um, that is that is pervading the culture. And we're seeing a lot of focus on mm-hmm. um, providing solutions, anti-anxiety solutions, um, as well as, as some sort of responsibility. Um, and, and just like, are you contributing to the anxiety or are you helping solve it? Um, and I think, you know, one thing that we, we saw that I, I think is interesting and going to stick around is the, um, the website, Did They Help?, um, which shows what companies and brands are doing during the pandemic. Um, and that, that uh, has been, is sort of constantly updated with their responses and, and what they're doing, both you know, in sort of direct response, like are you, did you start making masks or, or hand sanitizer early on, all the way to are you supporting small businesses in, in your communities that are, are, um, that are may, might be suffering, um, to also now start to include things as to like how are you responding to the Black Lives Matters protests, um, and you know sixty one percent of U.S. consumers say that they think that how companies are responding uh, during this time is going to influence their future purchases. Um, those are you know people mm-hmm. who are saying it consciously. I think there might be even more who subconsciously might be be pushed in in certain directions based on what they see brands doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's it is a time to uh, take action and to and to clarify your your brand values uh, and to to not just talk about them but to act on them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Christina, what are your what are your thoughts? I mean, hot takes. I mean, safe to say we are like more than ever in the age of anxiety as we speak. <laughs> um, so we couldn't have been more right with that trend. Um, I think what we're seeing on the brand side, though, Adam touched on a lot of it, but the only thing I want to add in action and silence is saying something in and of itself and wanted to underscore that because I think a lot of people, especially people and brands right now are afraid to say something and make the wrong call. And so they say nothing. And I think what we're seeing from consumers is that you need to speak up you have to put yourself out there, take the risk, educate yourself 
on whether you're a brand or a person on what the right thing to do and say is. And then I think what we're seeing, especially now, is that there's something in the ether right now where everyone is just fed up with essentially everything right now. And the second they see something, they call it out. And while I think cancel culture is a bit ridiculous and has gone a bit left right now, I do think we're having productive conversations with brands about you're either saying one thing or saying nothing, but then your internal organizational culture or the way you're structured or your executive board doesn't mirror what you're saying. So I think an example from, frankly, one of my favorite brands, Celine, that I'm quite reconsidering right now is um, they posted a square, a black square in support of Black Lives Matter. But if you scrolled through their Instagram feed all the way down to when Hedy Slaman took over, it's all white models. There is not one person not even one brown person, not one black person. And when you see something that stark where, okay, you're sticking up for Black Lives Matter, but all of the models you use are skinny and white men and women, um, there's a huge discrepancy between uh, words and action. And I think brands now, if they are not backing up what they say with action, real action on their part, everything from mm -hmm. external donations to internal their organizational structure, um, I don't think they'll survive anymore. I completely agree. And that's our show this week. Remember, we have now switched the live stream office hours with uh, into Thursdays from 2 to 3. So uh, make sure to tune into that every Thursday afternoon. Uh, and feel free to ask us any questions. You can, you can reach myself and Adam on Twitter or shoot us an email. So with that, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you all next week. Bye.